0: Hi there, welcome to part three of a special Rook series assessing the Pahlavi dynasty 40 years after the death of the last Shah of Iran. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is a three part series based on interviews conducted in 2020 on the 40th anniversary year of the death of the Shah, we wanted to use the occasion to take stock, if you will, of where we are at in understanding the history of Iran in the last century, the place of the Pahlavi dynasty and the precipitance of the 1979 Islamic revolution. We assembled a group of three well-known thinkers who have all deeply studied the Pahlavi era and have differing opinions on the legacy of Mohammad Reza Shah four decades after his death in exile. In part one of the series, we heard from Dr. Abbas Milani. In part two, we got a perspective from writer and historian Andrew Scott Cooper, and in this part three of the series, we hear from renowned Iranian historian and author Mohammad Amini. I should note that this is a special Rook series. For our regular episodes of Rook, we invite you to visit our website, rookmedia.com, where you can find all of our editions of the program, the guests we've had on, and our ongoing mission to build an audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. You can also help us out there if you like what you hear on this program and become a patron of our show by pressing the Support Us button at the top of the website. Okay, let's get to part three of this series. So on our last edition, we heard from Andrew Scott Cooper, who has written what may be called perhaps a generous appraisal of the Pahlavi dynasty in the final years. But as the late Shah's record is one of the most contentious and divisive subjects of contemporary Iranian history, it should come as no surprise that Andrew Scott Cooper's account has generated strong pushback by other historians. This episode's guest is one of those critics. Prominent Iranian historian Mohammad Amini has done extensive research on the 1953 coup and is the son of a close confidant of the late Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh. Professor Amini began his political life as a supporter of Shapur Bakhtiar, the last prime minister of imperial Iran, but he is famed for his historical research on subjects varied from modernity to constitutional revolution to tribal and ethnic discourses in Iran, the last Islamic movement and the formation of a nation state in Iran. Mohamed Amini is a prolific author whose books include Tradesmanship with History, a factual investigation into the 1953 coup aimed at debunking the misinformation campaign against Mossadegh, and the time and life of Ahmad Kasravi*. Mohamed Amini joined us from Orange County, California. Hello, sir.
1: Thank you very much. I just have to make one correction. I'm not a professor. I don't teach anywhere, so I appreciate that. But um, I just have to make sure that people don't accept, you know,
0: don't make that mistake. Thank I, you very I much. appreciate Go. the correction. I, I just I think I project uh, professorship onto all historians. So can I call <laughs> can I call you a historian? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, before we get into some of this, I mean, you, you would be among that flight of intellectuals who left Iran during or after 1979. And, and as I say, before we get into the debated historic questions, uh, give us some background, some context about your personal experience in those volatile months before and after the revolution and, and what created the conditions for you to leave Iran for the last time.
1: Well, I, just like uh, Dr. Milani. I came from a background of uh, activities in the United States uh, in the student movement against the Shah, and uh, uh, very idealist at the time. Everybody was idealist at the time. I went to Iran a year before revolution, and I witnessed everything, and it was amazing. And I was involved in a lot of things, and I stayed there for... Uh, survived their should issues for four years. And the biggest issue that I confronted at the time that I was in Iran before the revolution was when Bahtiar was selected by the Shah to be the prime minister, and the Japanese National Front was against that. And my father was very, you know, important in that relationship and had spent a lot of time in jail with Bahtiar, And when Bakhtiar came to power... It, it was pretty much too late, you know. It was a movement that had gone from the point of possible reform to the point of no no return, and it was a very, very sad situation for a person like me to see Iran collapse into the hands of the Islamic, you know, fundamentalists and people that have no clue even to how to turn the television, you know, into the. <laughs> Uh, for themselves. So, yes, it was a sad situation. Basically, I watched, you know, very close by the collapse of all the, at least the superficial uh, elements of modernity in Iran, and ele- right. everything else that was created. Right. And uh, under the banner of uh, Mal Bashar, you know, down the United States and all of that, Iran actually going to a very very wrong direction and that was the biggest issue at a
0: time when you say like dr. Milani you returned to Iran uh, for a time Mm -hmm. in the mid-seventies you were also like him pro-revolution or at least sympathetic to it before things turned and it was co-opted by the Islamic formalists would that be correct
1: oh absolutely nobody nobody at my you know age group age group of uh, 18 to 24, that was not for a change, major change. Everybody was for that. But none of us were for this kind of, you know, so-called revolution. We wanted a change. And I was like that, too. I was a young kid. I liked it, you know, the change. And then very soon I realized, realized that this is a change. i tell you, when I realized that, when I came from Aswahan to Tehran on the night that Tehran was burning when Shah basically declared uh, control in 12 cities. And that's, that night when Tehran was burning, and I was looking at the people that are burning Tehran, I said, really? Are these the guys that you are going to leave the country to? So it just shook me. And after that, we realized that you're, we are basically confronting a mob, and at the same time, a, gorgeous the movement of democracy and all of that, which had really limited leadership. So, yes, there was there was a problem at position and opposition. If there was, if Sean had heard the, the voice of the revolution a year earlier and the opposition had heard to that, uh, if, if somebody like Bakhtiar or Sadeghi or Sanjabi or somebody like that was put into power a year before, two years before. Reza Pahlavi would be king of Iran right now.
0: So just to clarify, when what when exactly did you end up leaving?
1: Four years after the revolution. After my kids were singing, you know, and, uh, and uh, I mean, that the Arabic, you know, so-called initial national anthem of Iran, I told my wife at the time, we gotta leave. And of course, I was in danger all the time. And, uh, because of my relationship, my father's relationship with uh, people that were known in the government, I was kind of safe, but at the same time, I didn't feel safe. So, my kids and my wife, at uh, the time, they left from the mountains of uh, Kurdistan, and I left from um, Mihirabad with a bribe. I never been back again.
0: Wow. So. Let me get into this, uh, the historiography of what we can look at in terms of uh, what happened 40 years ago from the prism of 2020. You know, as, as more and more diplomatic communiques from the late 70s are declassified, a revisionist historical approach, it seems, is emerging with regard to the Iranian revolution and specifically regarding the record of the late Shah of Iran. And this new approach tends to challenge that conventional wisdom that overwhelmingly blames the late shah for everything from being an authoritarian dictator to a weak puppet of western powers and everything in between is now the time to redraw historic conclusions
1: yes it is actually it's the best time to do that because iran is in a sense pregnant with uh, future i think iran is going to change is iran is going to change dramatically in the next few years and because of the position of Iran, historically, geographically, economically, and the influence it has in the whole region, that change is going to change Middle East. So that review is very important. But let's go back and review. We have uh, this uh, long article by one of the most profound uh, economic, you know, ministers in at least in the last uh, uh, 70 years of Iran, Ali Nagiyeh, Ali Khani, in the the introduction to memoirs of uh, Alam, he is the best, that is the best analysis from from somebody who was from within the government, who was inside the government, who was responsible in building the economy, that he basically says that the Shah screwed it. He had the best economy, he had popularity, but his issue of selfishness, issue of dictatorship, concepts of him being it, really destroyed it for himself. Let me go back, if I may. You know, after the coup of 1953, which I've written a lot about, and I hate the elites of the people around the Shah for that. But after that, At the beginning of the 40s, the the Iranian 40s, the American 50s, or 60s, I should say, Shah started reforms. And those reforms, actually, along with the increase in the oil prices, were the biggest, most important reforms, social reforms in Iranian history. About women, about land, about just about everything. When we get to beginning of the 1970, Shah is the most popular king, you know as a historian I can tell you, from the time of Nosser Shah, which at the time the popularity was basically mandated. He was popular. he was accepted and the opposition groups were absolutely non-existent. Japan was nobody the left was just an underground you know a few groups that had no influence and this man could have changed the course of history he used his popularity with all the social reforms to political reforms and if he had done that his son would be the shah of iran right now he didn't and that is the biggest issue with the shah that he didn't use that popularity of uh, reform, which made him an extremely popular individual at the end of the 40s when he actually uh, started the right, white revolution and, and the law of Shah Humaylat and things like that. Yes, I still don't understand why not.
0: There's, there's conflicting ideas around who he was and what he did. You know, so I was just speaking with Andrew Scott Cooper, who makes the claim that the Shah was actually quite shy and modest and not the arrogant dictator that he's been made out to be. Do you think the way the Shah has been portrayed in, in personal terms has been unfair in the last four decades?
1: You know, there's not enough information at hand to judge that, but there is a point to Professor Cooper about this. Shah was a very weak individual. You want to know about a person, you have to read the memoirs of the closest people to him. And one of the closest people to him that to the end of life loved him was Soraya. And in that phenomenal book, The House of Solitude, which is, of course, in French, you know, uh, written by a Frenchman with the help of Soraya. She mentions so many points that the Shah is so lonely, Shah is scared, that every time there's a problem he actually packs his suitcase, he wants to go out, he wants to just leave. Basically you get this impression that Muhammad al Rashah was the second Shah after Ahmad, you know, the first Ahmad Shah and then Muhammad is al-Shah that they became reluctant shahs, reluctant kings. During World War Two, when Iran was invaded by uh, Allied, Shah was a reluctant king. He was very scared at the beginning. Gradually, he discovered his uh, power. And to the end, I don't think he was a bloodthirsty dictator. He was a a very very not very confident individual to mm-hmm. the end. Mm-hmm. And even to the point that Kaiser comes to Iran and says, sir, you have to leave tomorrow. And he asks in the morning or afternoon. There's a huge difference between his character and his father that was begging for he to stay in Iran, even if he's not a Shah. So, yeah, he had, he had basically issues with his character.
0: What, what about the notion that new evidence shows that, according to historians like Cooper, uh, there were significantly less human rights violations, less abuses, less executions under the Shah in the 1970s than the world had been led to believe in the run-up to the uh, end and the aftermath of the revolution. What is your take on that?
1: Oh, absolutely, that's true. You know, I I met uh, Shukri Lai Park Najad, which, uh, you know, we called him Shokri, one of the longest uh, prisoners. Uh, And he was... uh, critical of the activities of the groups of uh, people that I belong to Milani belong to your we opposition student opposition young kids outside of Iran which be exaggerated the number of Iranian prisoners to hundred thousands and all of that and he was saying listen at the high time of arrest we were only about 5,000 people in jail Yes, there were torture, there were a lot of things. There's no question that there were, you know, abuse of power and use of human human rights, but it was exaggerated. It was grossly exaggerated. You know, my father went to jail 11 times, from the coup to the time he left Iran. And every time that he actually went to jail, the head of Savark or somebody in the Savark would call and my father would pack his bag and then go to jail and then stay for 10 days, 15 days, 3 months, 6 months and come back. No scars. The the opposition outside was successful in claiming that and establishing it and selling it and then the Bernard Nosser Committee in London actually made it official and once they said that it was totally accepted. There was dictatorship. There was torture in Iran. There was there were political political prisoners in Iran, but the amount of it, the the, the you know basically the level of it was exaggerated. There's no question
0: about it. Mohammed, could it be as Abbas Milani suggested to me on Monday that the Different and often contradictory profiles of the late Shah offered by different historians may all have truth in them, uh, truth to them, in, in the sense that the Shah may have demonstrated vastly different personality traits at different stages of his rule and at different stages of his life.
1: Absolutely. You know, that that goes without saying. You know, we can say that the Mahjahs are Shah too. But look, at, look at the life of the Queen of Iran, Shahabanu. I've never met her, I don't have any sympathy to her, but her closest friend was Hajibi, you know, a major major, you know, figure in the left who actually went to Cuba a few times, Zida Hajibi and Farah was sympathetic, sympathetic to him. And there were levels of freedom in Iran that nobody realize at the time especially in the social area political domain.
0: you explain why the Chauveron, who, 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 as you say, um, presided over um, uh, tremendous reforms, modernity, uh, uh, was incredibly popular by the early 70s, why he didn't have better instincts for what the people would want and expect around the political suppression that happens throughout the, the 70s and into the late 70s that ultimately is one of the reasons for his downfall?
1: like any other dictator. They don't trust people around them. They think that they're doing these things in order to gain against them. Instead of instead of accepting things that people like Ali Khani were doing and other peoples within the cabinet were doing, instead of taking advantage of that, he thought that these people are conspiring against him. That's a concept of... Uh, uh, Dictatorship. Uh, look at this. At the beginning of the fire, you know the, the rise of Reza Shah, every intellectual from Mashruti, from uh, constitutional revolution was around Reza Shah. At the end, everybody's gone. Some are dead, some are killed, some are in jail, some have escaped the country. The same thing happened to Mohammad Reza Shah. The the problem with dictatorship is mistrust of the people that tell you the truth rather than understanding that these people are telling you what to do they go after exactly the same people that are telling you the truth and dictator things that he knows the best he can actually run the country without anybody so at the end Shah is a lonely guy nobody's around him to advise him
0: Let me ask you about the revolution itself and your take on it. One other area that's receiving more scrutiny by researchers is the alleged connections between the revolutionaries, uh, the mullahs, in fact, and foreign powers, primarily the, the United States and Britain, in the months leading up to the revolution. Based on your research, what do we know today that we didn't know even, say, 20 years ago?
1: There was a point that finally Western intelligence groups uh, came to the conclusion that they cannot protect the Shah's uh, government. They have to go to someone else, and the only thing they saw in the, in the whole situation that Iran had a very, very large, active leftist movement, and miles of border with the then-Soviet Union, the only choice they had was a Islamic movement, which they thought they would control the same way that British thought, you know, They would control the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt. But I think we should go back. I think that's not about just the last few months. The reality is that After the beginning of modernity from Iranian Revolution of 1905, and then the rule of Reza Shah and everything else, we had development of two societies in Iran. The modern society of the cities and the so-called non-modern society of the villages. And with the increased income of oil, there were more and more reason for people from villages to come to cities. And it became a situation that on the probably on the verge maybe two years before Iranian revolution, many cities in Iran had become villagized, had become more and more ideologically close to ideology of villagers who came to basically make more money. And they were religious. And Tehran, most of the mosques, you know, never had anybody more than 50 uh, prisoners, and suddenly a thousand, two thousand, all of that. Uh, We had a revolution of people from outside of cities against the cities. And really, the cities were taken over by zealots and believers and religion and. Uh, that's really what happened. Everybody was just completely surprised. How is it possible that a city like Tehran, with all these beautiful boulevards and stores and everything else, bunch of you know religious
0: zealots are taking over? But back to the, in terms of the, the connections and the um, enabling by the United States, say, of those formalist Islamists that would be related to a strategic play related to the Soviet Union?
1: Yeah, of course. They looked at the Soviet Union as the enemy and they they played that. But the problem with the policy of the United States at the time was that the United States was completely different from the several hundred years of the uh, colonial rulers of England. England would study every country uh, completely. I mean, they would just go over every inch of that country in order to be a- able to control And they did for many, many hundred years. Years. United States basically. You know, people sat in an office and analyzed, and many times never realized what's going on. Uh, yes, they. The idea was to support any movement against the left and all of that in support of the maybe they wouldn't call it Islamists, you know, they thought this is just the passing things. But to this day, I have to say, to this day, the United States doesn't have a complete understanding of what happens in Middle East, in cultural, uh, tribal, religious, and everything in that regard, and they lose every time. The reality is that there was a chance, a huge chance for the United States to align themselves with the democratic forces in Iran and calm down the situation. They did not, because it was a global issue. So, yes, the United States uh, definitely helped creation of the Islamic Republic without intention you know that this is not that they wanted to do this but they had no choice they thought Shah is gone who do we bring to power and that's what they did because every time it is uh, like that and I've always said that you know in my speeches and researches every time British Empire left a country it was with a ceremony with a flag you know kind of brought down and respectfully left. And most of the time that unfortunately the United States left some of this country was either from a rooftop or absolutely in disgrace uh, because of the lack of knowledge of the culture of these countries to this age.
0: At the center of all of this back in 79 is General Robert Heiser's. 79 mission to Tehran and it's now widely known that Heiser met with senior Iranian military leaders without any clearance from the Shah and established meetings between them and, and Khomeini allies. Why didn't the Shah take any measures against Heiser?
1: Because he was afraid. Shah was not a very brave individual. He was not like his father. He basically thought that is in a box and this is a scripture they've given him to read. All the memoirs I read, interviews that I read from people that are very high in military, Shah never basically intervened. Shah was only interested in his cut, who he is, is he going to be there. Reza Shah wasn't like that. Reza Shah wanted everything, wanted control. I mean, you cannot be the half-baked dictator. I, uh, unless you're a dictator, <laughs> not a big dictator. Right. Shah was like, okay, whatever, you know, I am there.
0: And uh, but this is this is the, what Abbas Milani says, uh, to paraphrase him, that he wasn't a dictator enough to prevent the revolution. No,
1: no you, know, you know, you know, this is this is uh, Daeshmendy told me this, you know. You know, a group of people like Darish Humayun got around the Shah and recommended that he would go and kill, you know, like 2,000 people, arrest 20,000, and stop the whole thing. And he wouldn't do that. And to be honest with you, that is to his credit. You know, that if there is one credit to the Shah, is that he did not do that. He did not go and killing people and killing the, the whole so-called revolution by bloodshed and all of that, and because of that, you know, that's a good point in his life. But that was not in his character anyway. And people like Daljouche told me before his death, a good friend, wonderful person, you know, he come from different, oppos- you know, from the opposition ideas, but it's bad that there was a recommendation. Recommendation was that go and go after the guys. Chill, you know thousand people and arrest 20,000 people and put this whole thing to rest. And these people really believe that it's going to end it. And Shaw did not fall for it. He, okay, we can say it was because he was tassu or not brave enough or because that was not in his character,
0: which is, in a sense, good. You know, much of the narrative about the Tumultuous final days of the Shah are based in two autobiographies, The Pride and the Fall uh, by Sir Anthony Parsons, who served as the British ambassador to Iran at the time of the revolution, and Mission to Iran, of course, by William Sullivan, the U.S. ambassador to Iran right. at the time. So today, historians such as Andrew Scott Cooper, we just heard from, raising serious doubts about the accuracy and the motives behind these autobiographies. What What is your take on Sullivan and Parson and their books?
1: Mm. very much based on their uh, personal interest it's not accurate you know we we need to gather more information from people at the time to come up with a more correct evaluation of what happened in the last two years of the last mor because we owe it to the history you know this is this is the, a country this is a longest uh, uh, train of uh, Kingdom in the world, and it ended ended in a sense that nobody thought it would end like this. And I know a lot of people, or some people, think that it will come back. You know, with Reza Pahlavi and all of that. You know, realistically, it will not. It will not go back. In no country it has come back. But I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about the reality of history. This has to be evaluated, and both of the books you mentioned. Have shortcomings in that respect. And in, in final analysis, in my opinion, Shah of Iran, who was a dictator, who actually put the most decent man of the modern time of Iran, Dr. Mossad, in jail, he was a reformer. He was a reformer. And he he could have remained a reformer and he would have uh, been, remained despite all of these things as a reformer. He missed that chance. And uh, so it's a, this is not a black and white evaluation. This is something that we have to evaluate, and uh, the other last. I mean, you see in the uh, the the memoirs of Alam, Yatasha Alam, that he says that uh, these people brought my father to power and they took him out of the country, and they're going to do the same thing to me. He was extremely suspicious of that, suspicious of that, and he was not powerful to build a group of people around him that came from different backgrounds to fight that, and that feeling, you know, the, the way he left the country, on the tarmac, crying. You know, I was at the time a republic, not Republican in the sense, of American, but- Right, right. But when I saw the king of Iran crying like that, I felt ashamed for my country for my people, it was like uh, the Baymans that were forced on Iran to separate good portions of Iran from Iran. This was the king of Iran. And me and my father, as people that were absolutely for republic, seeing the king of Iran leave Iran in tears like that, to be honest with you, it broke my heart, because that's my nation, and that guy, to that point, is my king.
0: A guy that you helped overthrow.
1: Yeah, but I didn't want him to leave like that.
0: You mentioned Mossadegh. And uh, if you don't mind, let me ask you a couple of questions about the about 1953 yeah. because I know that's an area of your your expertise. And I- Iranian intellectuals such as yourself have long argued that the revolution in a sense was inevitable, if, if longstanding, uh, as a consequence of the, the 1953 coup. Um, just just to push back on that, could it be that the coup was perhaps a defining factor only within intellectual circles, many of whom were either nationalists or leftists. I mean, could the coup have had much less significance for the Iranian, uh, the ordinary Iranian?
1: Yes, of course. I'm not one of those uh, uh, proponents of the idea that uh, it was the coup that caused the Islamic revolution. I I don't believe in that at all. Uh, That was a terrible, terrible page in our history. It was the biggest mistake of the Shah, and I don't want to go into that. But the point is, it created a new chapter in Iran. The chapter that was opened in Iran uh, after 1920, when you know the Allied forces invaded Iran and there was some some pseudo democracy in Iran and elections and all of that, was that there could be political debate. And there was. And it was great. That ended in uh, Bistache de Mordat, ended in the coup. Mm -hmm. Now, Shah had a choice. He ended it. He consolidated power. He now could basically build a new society. To some extent, he did. And then to some extent, he actually went further. He actually created some other issues, other problems, and problems that exist in the countries of Middle East. So the issue of the coup of 1953 has to be examined separately from Iranian revolution. I uh, I know some people like to link the two together and say that's the cause. It's not the cause. Absolutely it's not the cause. has nothing to do with each other. But yes, there is an issue that kind of democracy that is started in Iran after invasion of uh, Iran by Allied forces it ended in 1953 and nothing came back to it and that is the biggest issue that we never saw the signs of the constitutional revolution and the the constitution basically again uh, parliament became nothing and became, that's it, the ruler, which was the whole issue of the Constitution to end. But that's the whole point, and there was a dialogue that was, was lost in the whole culture and the society from uh, in the 1950s, 1960s, actually, I'm sorry,
0: in Iran. Just as a sidebar, the... The, the the current regime or the Islamist rulers of Tehran, let's say, they also rely heavily on the the 1953 coup d'état in their official accounts to delegitimize the Shah. This occurs to me as it's quite ironic, as they openly renounce the late Prime Minister Moss- Mossadegh and, and nationalists as well. So, what is the root of this contradiction?
1: The root is basically a culture of anti-Americanism and anti. Foreigner that that goes back to the uh, middle of the 19th century Iran from the uh, Ruija contract that Iranians actually rebelled against anything that was foreigner and then after 1950 1953 American became the enemy and they became the reason that Iran is the way it is and the Shah became the symbol of the American control of Iran, and he was, as they call it, no chairman, please no chairman because things like that. That was it. Right. That American imperialism has taken over Iran so much that we have privilege. Shah became the agent of imperialism, agent of the uh, the West, and the Western the, the Mullahs used that. Tremendously, in a sense, uh, capably, which the leftists could not do that. And the whole thing was a, was a lie. You know, Shah was not a servant of so called uh, imperialism. Yes, sure, he was aligned with the West. He was definitely aligned with the United States. But this whole concept that they told him what to do and he would do that, well, that was not true. But that wasn't an issue anymore. The issue was when the movement started, two years before the Iranian Revolution, Shah was already agent of the United States, and U.S. was the reason that Iran was in this situation. To this day, it is. To this day, U.S. the main enemy. And the Islamists actually use that, not just in Iran, in other countries too, masterfully, and the United States has not been able to respond to that. Re- realistically speaking, uh, there were more uh, friendliness between Iranians and Americans than animosity, but that was created, and government could not respond to that, and the opposition fell into that, and revolution fell into that, and realistically speaking, Iranian revolution became an anti-imperialist, anti-American movement, and we lost it.
0: You know, I'm listening to you, and I'm cognizant of the fact that as uh, lucid and logical and... and uh, and somewhat passionate as everything you say is that there are people listening in our Iranian community uh, that are going to jump on every <laughs> every line and and or and disagree with it and I want you to I mean I put this to Abbas milani and to Andrew Scott Cooper as well if you can take off your historian hat for a second and just uh, talk to me as a member of uh, the diaspora like myself and 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 the fact that we are so there is so much partisanship there is so much uh factionalism a, a lot of it based in real emotion and anger and heartbreak um about this period and, and our collective history that when somebody i mean i can uh, you know in in your case for example i can hear somebody saying well he's the son of a prominent ally of uh, uh, the, of Mossadegh, so uh that's that's him. he's influenced by his father's teachings as as well and on all that how do we mend this? How do we mend this instinct to jump into our uh, into different factions um, when when it comes to assessing our own history?
1: I think we have to change the course or discourse. We can never unite on history. We're not supposed to. We cannot create a political movement, social movement, or any movement based on history, because history is history. And we're supposed to have different assessment of that. Uh, The Iranian intellectuals, from all different backgrounds, they should start talking about the future. We have a country that, at one time, used to produce so much oil that was envy of every other country. We have a practically bankrupt country right now. We have an isolated country. We have very little relationship all over the world. So the point and the question among Iranian intellectuals, thinkers, people that are looking for the uh, future of Iran is, how can we build this future? The issue is not the Daesh Morda. The issue is not coup. The issue is not the analysis of what the Shah was or the Shah was or what was. Those are extremely important as part of our heritage, as part of our history. But in building a new future, we have to start discussing how can we build Iran again?
0: Just returning to the precipitant for this conversation today and for these conversations we've been having this week on the the summer marking the 40th anniversary of the death of the Shah. If you can zoom out and um, g- going back to these narratives that played immediately, certainly before and after the revolution about the Shah, about the Pahlavi dynasty, is it fair to say, Muhammad Abini, uh, after 40 years, the record of the last Shah of Iran has been rehabilitated to a certain extent in Iran's national discourse and the discourse of the diaspora, or at least significantly altered.
1: Only because of the uh, things that the Islamic Republic has done. Otherwise, it would would not have been. What happened, and we, we should not forget this, there are a lot of good things that were done under Pahlavi's, both father and son. But the issue is that we had in revolution, we had the... one of the greatest uh, uh, non-violent revolutions in the world. And we created one of the first parliaments in the world, outside of Europe, where passed the uh, laws. Uh, Democracy is not something that is built overnight. It takes time. I mean, you look at even the history of the United States or England, especially the United States. You know, it came to a point that there was a civil war. 800,000 people died in that, and it took a lot of time. We were not given the chance of uh, experimenting democracy and finding out how it works. And the most important part of the Iranian constitution was Majlis, the parliament. And uh, Reza Shah called it, called it a Tavile stable. And then Muhammad Reza Shah, basically after 1953, uh, the coup just absolutely put it aside, and he ruled basically as a king. Did they do some good things? Oh, no question about it. So. My point is no, the judgment about the Pahlavi dynasty is not over. It has to be reevaluated, it has to be just, it has to be fair, it has to be balanced, and at the same time, it has to be judged against the possibilities of the time.
0: Right. Although, when you say any rehabilitation is based on what came after in terms mm-hmm. of the Islamic regime, which many people now look at with disdain and despair. Isn't that the point? I mean, isn't that people look back at their history and say, oh, we didn't realize what we had had. In fact, you hear some of this discourse in the United States now where there is an upcoming election and people will say they are reevaluating the Bush years now because of what we've had with with Trump. Uh, you know, I was an activist against Bush, but it is reframed now. And so this is the way we see the past, isn't it? Through the the lens of what we are experiencing today.
1: In a very short time. Yes. Yes, you know, when you were looking at it in a very short time. Yes. But when you are going to build a society for the future, no. You have to look at possibilities. I mean, when you look at the past against another past, and you say that this was the past and this was the other past and which the other past was better than this past, then you are subjecting subjecting yourself to a limit. uh, But societies are progressing, Uh, You don't have to do that. Uh, We are a proud nation with amazing underground and uh, social geographic possibilities. So many different cultures. Why should we limit ourselves between the choice of this government and the last one? Why can't we say, you know, why don't we build something new. You can use the same thing about this regime. You can look at this regime and say, they built 600 universities. They took, you know, the broadcast to every village, electricity, all of that. But, you know, they did this or that. The point is, our societies doomed to be within possibilities of the past and the past? Or they can look forward. I think we can look forward. We did it. Did we it? Did we must it? We need to look forward. We need to look at possibilities that are real. That we as a nation, as people uh, with this history, with this culture, with this kind of abilities, so many intellectuals all over the world, we can build something a lot better than this society that
0: you're living in and the past so on that note a final question and you did allude to this earlier in the interview but let me ask it directly in in recent protests in iran i'm thinking about last november especially in the those mm. those those bloody protests uh, right. we we saw what seemed like a growing chorus of chants in the streets calling for the return of the monarchy from the historic point of view could a constitutional monarchy be a some kind of natural successor to a theocratic dictatorship?
1: You know, without any bias, I don't think so. It hasn't ever happened. You know, it has not happened other parts of the world. And the problem is that we don't have the moral in Iran. We don't have a period in Iran that the constitution, the monarchy was... Uh, abiding by the Constitution, except during Yaman Shah, which everybody called him such a weak, you know, king, <laughs> and promoted as Shah. Uh, I don't think so. And, and the, the bigger question I have is, why do we need it? I mean, do is, is this a situation that our country needs a king to put the different parts of the society together? I mean, during this, Islamic Republic has, any part of the country has um, separated? I, I don't think so. I don't think we, I mean, if you can prove to me that a kingdom would be a good way of keeping the country together, I will not have any problem with it. But I don't see any reason for it. I don't see any justification for it. I think Reza Pahlavi could come back and, Live in one of the castles and be a money-making, you know, king in Iran without any authorities. But in reality, thinking that's going to be a sandwich, uh, I don't think so. Uh, let me add something to it that may be a little, you know, too much. I don't think Rojava Levy has any desire to go back to Iran. I don't think he knew. I don't think. I, I think he knows that there is no room for him. So, the fact that Iran could c- go back to a constitutional monarchy, my question is why, and how, and
0: who. Mohammad Amini, I'm so uh, grateful for your time today. Thank you so much for doing this, uh, and uh, uh, thank you for participating in this series. Thank you for your patience and uh and uh, I know you haven't been feeling so great, so it's, uh, it's uh, an extra gratitude uh, that you... Uh, thank you, uh, thank you uh, very much. Very well to have you. Merci, yeah. khudafis. That was a conversation with Mohammed Amini, the author and historian whose books include Tradesmanship with History and the Time and Life of Ahmad Khasrabi. He joined us from Orange County, California. This is the end of part three of our Rook series, Assessing the Pahlavi Dynasty. Thank you so much for your interest in this series, and we invite you to give us feedback on any of our platforms or via email at info at rookmedia.com. Remember to subscribe on our platforms and become a patron if you appreciate what we do at our website, rookmedia.com. You just have to hit the support us button. $5 and $10 a month helps keep the lights on for us at Rook thank you so much. New editions of Rook are posted across our platforms every Monday and Thursday. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Mizumbashi.